Good evening, friends. Welcome to the Sunday special. It's uh, the hour is late, and it's time for a story. So, JRPG fans, sit back, relax, or better yet, fire up your favorite JRPG as we explore the history of Final Fantasy. We're going to call this part one. Uh, this is the Sunday special episode two. So we're going to be exploring um, the history of Final Fantasy starting with part one. I think we're going to end up on part nine. And there may even be a mystic quest thrown in there somewhere as well. So for, without any further ado, let's get into it. This is taken from an IGN article uh, originally posted back in June of 2009. It has been updated as late as last February of 2018. Final Fantasy is the longest swan song of all time. It was never meant to last, but now, more than two decades later, it remains the most recognizable name in role-playing games. More of an idea than a true series, it has evolved into something that a young Hironobu Sakaguchi would never recognize, and almost single-handedly turned a small, struggling company into an international powerhouse. In the system, it is never or conceded to rest on its laurels. Every new game has continued to press forward, and that's precisely what makes it one of the most interesting stories in gaming history. Sakaguchi joined Square right out of college. At only 21 years old, he started his journey to bring the software company into the world of computer games. You could scarcely pick a more exciting time to be a gamer, as the Nintendo Fanicon was giving birth to a new console market, and a console of 8-bit computers explored new kinds of games never possible before in the arcades. Western genres like the adventure games and RPGs were creeping into Japanese systems, and pretty soon, they'd eclipse the arcade shooters of old. The watershed moment for RPGs came in 1986, release of Dragon Quest on the Famicom. Gamings like Wizardry and Black Onyx introduced Japan to the genre, but Enix's flagship title distilled into it a simple, playable form the console crowd could embrace. Along with Super Mario Bros. and The Legend of Zelda, the title went on to become one of the defining games of the Famicom's early life and propelled it, and propelled the console to a new level of success. This was the climate when Square released the earliest game in 1986, their earliest game. Sakaguchi released a pair of graphic adventures. The others of the companies put out Cruise Chaser Blasty, Square's original, first original RPG. By the following year, it had some novel pseudo-3D games on the NES. Tabarasi, Dakousen, and Highway Star might sound unfamiliar, but we'd bet you'd have heard of their American names, 3D World Runner and Rad Racer. Square was picking up a lot of creative steam, but there was one problem. Their games weren't really selling. Sakaguchi grew increasingly pessimistic as the company faced possible bankruptcy, and he realized the game would likely be his last. Every man wants a legacy, 
so he committed to taking one good crack at a masterpiece before bowing out. He decided to make his final game in Fantasy Epic and named it accordingly. The finality of the title would haunt him in the years to come, but at the time, it seemed perfect. Final Fantasy followed the mold of other RPGs of the day. The genre wasn't crowded yet, but competition was heating up. Final Fantasy released on the same week as Sega's Fantasy Star and just two months ahead of Dragon Quest III. Classic games and timeless rivals. Fans still squabble about which of these was truly the best, but all of them played a role in legitimizing the RPG as a mainstay genre. To stay competitive with Enix, who drafted Dragon Ball creator Akira Toriyama to do designs of their, for their games, Square recruited Yoshitaka Amano, known for his distinctive, sophisticated art style popularized by the Vampire Hunter D on the anime series. Coupled with a memorable, or a memorable soundtrack by Nomura Umatsu, was a polished package that just anyone could hop into. Just about anyone could hop into. This one game alone was not enough to build the Final Fantasy Empire, but it was successful enough to pull Square out of their financial crisis, at least for a little while. It cemented a long and valuable working relationship with Nintendo that would eventually pull them away from the computer game market and propel them to international success. It was nearly three long years before Nintendo's localization reached American kids. By the time it arrived, it was behind Fantasy Star, Dragon Quest, known as Dragon Warrior here, and even the 16-bit Fantasy Star 2. Despite the competition, Final Fantasy outsold them all in the U.S. and did much erode the myth that American console gamers didn't want RPGs. For many, it was the first time they'd ever played such an expansive, deep, and involved game. You never forget your first RPG, and that loyalty would take Square a long way. Well before Square even dreamed of releasing its game abroad, they were already hard at work on a sequel. With Dragon Quest cranking out new games about once a year, they knew they had to move faster to get left behind. Rather than just expanding the game with a bigger quest or more classes, they set the tone for future games in the series by releasing a game that had little connection to do with its predecessor and did its best to advance the gameplay and create something new. While Dragon Quest would later become notorious for its adherence to the convention, Dragon Quest, I'm sorry, Final Fantasy would constantly strive to be the next big thing. For the first time, Square placed it place their narrative front and center. While the first game had a thin story with interchangeable protagonists, competitors like Fancy Star had comparatively rich stories and even cutscenes. Final Fantasy II upped the game with an original cast of characters and names and devices with names and designs by Amano, with much more complex storyline set in a new world, unconnected to the first. Akatoshi Kawazu would later gain renown and infamy for his experimental approach to RPG mechanics, and it was during the development of Final Fantasy II that he first began to rebel. The sequel's gameplay was reworked considerably, 
the new leveling system that powered up players' skills based on specific criteria. For example, using swords would increase the player's sword's proficiency and attack skill, but magic could only be boosted by casting spells and archery by using a bow. Even hit points were leveled up by taking damage. On paper, this sounds like an intriguing way to add death. It forced players to <laughs> very hardly allow players in order to take damage in order to level up. And already it turned already cumbersome level grinding into an involved chore. While later remakes tone these elements down, Kawazu was banished from the mainstay series until Final Fantasy twelve and instead hinted up more experimental saga series. With the first game ahead in North America, Square decided to bring a single to our shores. While the original was localized by Nintendo, Final Fantasy II was the first major translation effort by Square's newly formed American office. Unfortunately, they still had a few things to learn. The effort was badly supported, and the translator was forced to make cuts and rewrites in order to try and cram the script in order to cram the script in place of the Japanese text with no compression. As the project dragged on, Square decided to to abort and focus on their next-gen effort, Final Fantasy IV. Final Fantasy II was never was never success than its predecessor was never as successful as its predecessor was. It didn't chase away fans, but it failed to propel the series to new heights. Despite some acknowledgement that the leveling system was a misstep, the sequel left its mark on the series. Chocobos and Sid, both introduced in Final Fantasy II, become common threads that tie together most of future sequels. The clock was ticking on the 8-bit generation. Sakaguchi and Square recouped, regrouped to complete their trilogy, just as Dragon Quest was beginning a new one. Once again, they stepped back to take a critical look at where they'd failed the last time, and where other games in the genre had eclipsed them. They wanted to make sure their third game would not only recapture what made the first one so good, but outdo it in every way. Packed into a then-massive 4 megabit cartridge, the third Final Fantasy was a true epic. Returning to the nameless characters of the first game, it packed a brand new system that would allow players to customize their characters as they go. Rather than just describing one of five character classes to each character at the beginning of the game, players could hop between different jobs throughout the game, pairing up their character's unique abilities in any one of 20 classes. It mirrored some of what Dragon Quest III was doing, but also set the stage for the class system in later Final Fantasy titles, especially the Tactics series. Final Fantasy III was warmly received, but quickly faded from view. While other games in the series were remade, repackaged endlessly, starting as early as Final Fantasy 1 and 2 combo card on the Famicom, Final Fantasy 3 was largely ignored until its DS remake in 2006. It still holds an important place in the series, setting the foundations for so many character classes, abilities, and skills, as well as introducing to those lovable Moogles for the first time. But, with the 16-bit generation encroaching, would find itself quickly eclipsed. The transition to a whole new generation of hardware is a tough move. It can 
either propel your series to new heights or leave you hanging without your loyal fan base. Final Fantasy III arrived right on the cusp after the launch of the Mega Drive Genesis system and just ahead of the Super Famicom or Super Nintendo. Square realized that they would have to confront this reality soon, but they decided to hedge their bet and develop two games in parallel. The first, named Final Fantasy IV, would again appear on the Famicom, while the other, Final Fantasy V, would follow not far behind on the newly launched Super Famicom. The move foreshadowed the way later games in the series would be developed, but back in 1990, it was just too much for Square to chew on. After the initial planning and pre-development, Square realized that they wouldn't, wouldn't, would not have the money to develop two games at once. So they quietly scrapped the NES game before any heavy-duty development work had begun. They diverted the resources to the 16-bit sequel and retitled it Final Fantasy IV. While previous games in the series made major changes to the underlying gameplay of the series, Final Fantasy IV looked to refine them in a way that was accessible and complemented the epic story. Rather than having nameless heroes that would hop between classes like the previous game, was the first in the series to introduce a large ensemble cast. This gave players a variety of classes to play with, but also helped Square develop a more complex, involved plot that encompassed personal relationships and global politics, taking the heroes beneath the planet's surface and even into space. While still rooted in classic fantasy themes from earlier games, it started to show more a much more diverse world than anything fans had seen before. This isn't to say the fourth game didn't innovate. For the first time since the series began, Square made a major change to the combat with the introduction of the active time battle system. This gave characters recovery times for attacks based on their individual stats, so players would have an edge if they could make decisions quickly and capitalize on their faster speeds. Although it was a subtle refinement, save points also proved a worthy addition that helped benefit the game's pacing. Even more than just the sprawling world that refined gameplay, the new technology paid dividends. While the sprites were still as tiny as ever, and Square hadn't quite mastered the finer points of a large palette, the graphics still put every 8-bit RPG to shame. Perhaps more importantly, the Super Nintendo's advanced sound hardware completely changed the tone of Urumetsu's score. Once again, a handful of beeps and bloops made up the entire soundtrack. No, once where bleeps and bloops made up the entire soundtrack, the SNES could rec- use recorded samples to mimic an orchestral sour, lending a grandiose feel to the music that no RPG had ever bit hardware paid off. For once, Square managed to completely beat Enix to the punch, lending more than a year ahead of the first 16-bit Dragon Quest game. They also submitted their hold on the RPG niche abroad. While Enix's American division closed up shop, Square was intent on making Final Fantasy a household name for kids in the States. They released this in its debut to Final Fantasy II. They released it as Final Fantasy II to cover up the fact that we had missed quite a bit. Because the stories of the series were unrelated, Square's inconsistent releases never hurt them abroad. Final Fantasy II's American version might not have had the best translation. It was censored, broken, and full of unintentionally hilarious dialogue. Of course, 
who could forget the Spooty Bard comment. But it managed to eclipse Fancy Star 2 on Genesis and helped to establish the SNS as the go-to system for RPG fans on both sides of the Pacific. Before long, Square would be giving the American market a game of its very own. Final Fantasy and its sequel scored big in America. While role-playing games were still considered niche, the real mainstream success of Final Fantasy made Square's series practically synonymous to the genre. To strengthen this, Square actually started releasing other Final Fantasy spin-offs. Saga became Final Fantasy Legend, and Seiken Desatsu became Final Fantasy Adventure. The connection between games and the series was always loose anyway, so the move only served to strengthen the brand. The series was on the cusp in the U.S., and Square wanted to give it that final push into mainstream success. They decided to build a game from the ground up for the American market, a Trojan horse that would get us hooked on RPGs for years to come. They called it Final Fantasy Mystic Quest. There hadn't been much research done to discern why exactly the U.S. was less responsive to RPGs. The Final Fantasy genre marked the, the genre's biggest success so far, but Square had a theory. Americans were just stupid. They had already made major alterations to our version of Final Fantasy IV to make it easier, but they wanted to go further and make one of the simplest RPGs ever. They had a Japanese development team work closely with American Office to develop a game that even kids could play. The result wasn't just a game of minimal grinding and low shot prices. It was an almost wholly linear experience where movement restricted to dotted lines connected areas and a computer controlled all but one of the members of your party. The freedom that is generally the most appealing part of the role playing had been gutted, but the slow based and turn based gameplay had been preserved. It just wasn't the right move. While the, thing, while the game sold modestly, it failed to ele- elevate the series to new levels in America. The following year, Japan got its own version under the title Final Fantasy USA, but it again failed to spark much excitement. Younger gamers found the title unapproachable. No, I'm sorry. Younger gamers found the title approachable, and some still remember it fondly. But it was a viable lesson for Square. Easy isn't the answer. Future releases on our shore would not be compromised. While we were occupied with Mystic Quest, Square was preparing to launch the next true sequel to the launch in December of 1992. Unlike our game, Final Fantasy V hoped to offer the deepest gameplay yet in the series. In fact, that that was a big part of the reason why we got Mystic Quest instead. Square felt Final Fantasy V would overwhelm the American audience. While in hindsight they were likely wrong about it, it is understandable why they might be worried Final Fantasy V was the deepest game in the series. It introduced a new version of the job system that interlocked with a new ability system. Any character in your party could freely hop between 22 different classes, each with unique characteristics, equipment, and stats. Leveling up enough with one class would grant certain abilities that could be equipped even after jumping to a new class. This made it possible to mix and match the potential different classes and create something very in, some very interesting combinations. Where the complexity of Final Fantasy II's leveling made grinding a chore, the new system of earning perks made it exciting. 
Square also made sure not to slip back into generic characters just because of all the new class system. Sure, this meant having to having to make class costumes for all five characters, but it was worth it to be able to tell a more personal story. The narrative lured players into a false sense of security with the Back to Roots quest for four crystals, only to turn it on its ear later and send the warriors on a quest that would span whole new worlds. Final Fantasy V's absence was felt abroad. While the series was new to our shores when Japanese gamers were playing 2 and 3, Americans knew they were missing something special with FF5. Magazines ran gushing import blurbs to twist the knife, and it was a wound that wouldn't heal quickly. In October of 1997, about a month after Final Fantasy VII changed the RPG landscape, a group of hackers calling themselves RPGE released a first version of their fan translation of Final Fantasy V. It was the first really high-profile fan translation effort to reach completion and, along with a patch of Final Fantasy II, it helped prepare the scene to new levels, as well as generate interest in the title from internet-savvy Americans. Square did eventually bring the game to our shores on the PlayStation with the release of Final Fantasy Anthology. It was met warmly by critics and praised for the very complexities that Square thought would alienate fans in the U.S., it was a bit of a vindication for us dumb Americans, but it arrived far too late. For the series' final installment on the SNES, and last on any Nintendo system for quite a while, Square regrouped with a newly restructured team and settled in for a more ex- expensive and somewhat longer development cycle than anything that had been done before. Hironobu Sekiguchi relinquished the directorial... <laughs> directorial title, assuming the role of producer, while FF5 vets Yoshinori, Katase, and Harukuku Hautu took over directing duties. The two would continue to shape the next several installments of the series, and their mark was felt. Finally, a Final Fantasy game stepped away from the familiar medieval fantasy world into a steampunk aesthetic set an industrial society that blends swords and sorcery with robots and railroads. The series was never cohesive, but FF6 didn't even look like a Final Fantasy game. It didn't matter. The name and some of the very nice screenshots were enough to get loyal fans on board. For the first time, there was real hype for a new Final Fantasy in the U.S. Square ran ads and magazines for a month before its release and shelled out for an animated TV commercial for the holiday season. Glowing previews hyped the game up and gushed about the import version, while American kids waited for the October release. The stage was set for a proper international blockbuster. Square seemed to learn their lesson about dumbing gamers down, about dumbing games down for Americans, and instead they found ways to balance accessibility and depth, much like they had done with Final Fantasy IV. Once again, the jobs were scraped in favor of a larger cast, this time a record 14 characters, with espers and relics to enhance their abilities and allow for some customization. The story structure was radically different than in previous games. While most Japanese RPGs have been growing increasingly narrow, Final Fantasy VI took some strides to marry story with non-linear design. This was done through a mix of subplots and flashback events, 
that could work out of order, some of which were entirely optional. While many console gamers not used to wide-open freedom of classic RPGs or open-world computer games, this was a completely new experience. Despite a less centralized narrative, Final Fantasy VI still packed an emotional punch. Perhaps because of the sheer number of characters, everyone had their favorite, and the personal backstories made each one resonate. While still using the standard in-game engine, the cutscenes grew increasingly cinematic. With the memorable events like the famed opera scene, standing out as some of the most poignant in gaming up to that point. Final Fantasy VI ruled its moment in time. Upon its release, it earned rave reviews at both sides of the Pacific, earning a perfect score from GamePro. If few RPGs can hope to have the emotional draw this one has, this is the new standard. It was as much of a success as Square could have hoped for as the climax of Final Fantasy's 2D incarnation is still remembered as the series zenith for many early adopters. The first 32-bit game in the series wasn't just a thing of the page. It was a whole new game. Much of what was the series was buried, and a new trail was blazed. It was a turning point not just for the series, but for the entire industry. Final Fantasy VII was a force that could not be ignored. Square had a long and cozy relationship with Nintendo that few ever thought to question. When they showed off a 3D demo featuring Final Fantasy VI's characters, many assumed that we were getting a glimpse of the series' next incarnation. When they announced their plans to jump ship to Sony's new platform, loyal fans felt betrayed. Square was a turncoat, but they were about to win over a whole new generation of fans. It wasn't an RPG that showed them the power of Sony's console, Capcom's Resident Evil, and taking a page uh, from Alone in the Dark, combined 3D and bitmap graphics in a way that allowed for detailed, realistic environments that could never be done in real time. The effect of using CGI backgrounds was immediately apparent. When Nintendo announced that they'd be limiting themselves to cartridges, Square had no choice. The divorce was bitter but Square made the right decision. The transition wasn't easy, though. Final Fantasy VI was already a massive undertaking by the standards of its day, with a team of around 50 people. Sakaguchi had hoped to return to the director's chair for the seventh game in the series, but as the team swelled, he soon realized that producing would be a full-time job. By the time a production had reached full swing, his staff had grown to more than quadruple the size of FF6s. Takaguchi managed the team as they expanded, while Yoshinori Kasaki, who had honed his skills on Chrono Trigger in the interim, returned to direct. Progress was difficult at first, as Square had only about six months of experience working with CGI graphics. But as soon as it started to come together, the team knew they were making history. Natasi realized early on that the eye-popping world they were creating would be their real way to capture the American audience, and not just simplify gameplay as been previously thought. In fact, it was the occasionally stubborn Japanese audience he was afraid of losing. These changes may seem largely superficial, and indeed the gameplay had not been radically changed, but they were powerful. The transition was like going from a screenplay to a fully realized movie. 
The much-talked-about death scene from the game's first act was nothing new for RPGs. It had been done uh, similarly in two Final Fantasy, in two fancy stars, and even within the Final Fantasy series before. But the cinematic presentation and rich detail gave it a power that small dialog boxes and tiny sprites could never have. It was simply an unforgettable moment. The world got their first playable taste of the game when Square released the demo disc with their 3D fighting game Total Number One. The hype train left the station immediately here and in Japan. Even with the enthusiastic coverage, no one quite knew how well the game would do. Delays pushed the release into 1997, but it was worth the wait. It sold more than 2 million copies in the first days, the first three days, and when all was said and done, it managed nearly 10 million in sales across the globe, including strong sales in Europe, which had never gotten a numbered Final Fantasy before. A new generation of role-playing had begun. Final Fantasy VII's impact on Japanese RPGs was intimate and permanent. Detailed cutscenes and environments became so universal that the Nintendo 64 suffered a near-total lack of RPGs. Its impact was no less significant in the West. While Bernie Stoller once said to Sony's vice president, that he didn't want RPGs on the PlayStation because they wouldn't flare the system. It was a Japanese RPG that would cement its stronghold on the market. It wasn't that Final Fantasy VII was an innovative game. Pre-rendered backgrounds and CGI cutscenes had all been done before, and the gameplay stayed close to their proven formula. But Square had their finger on the pulse. They used these tools to create a game of such undeniably broad appeal the publishers across the globe had to take notice. They shattered the myth that Americans wouldn't play RPGs, and that action would always win over story. Many were vindicated by the success, and many more forced to hang their heads in shame forever doubting. For many, especially those in American Europe, Final Fantasy VII would be their first RPG. The sentimental bond gamers feel for Square's 32-bit classic is rivaled by few others. Its star has faded a bit, as we look back with a critical eye, but there's little to deny its lasting impact. Even in recent years, Square's still dredging up its characters for the movie Advent Children, or the PS2 spinoff Dirge's Service. It was a breakthrough. It was a commercial zenith, and it was Square's greatest triumph. In the years that would come, they would find themselves forever chasing their success, never to reach it again. Final Fantasy VII was a production of an epic scope. While the delays didn't end, Square realized that they needed to plan ahead if they were going to pace their releases right. They made the decision to form two separate teams, albeit with considerable overlap, to work on future games in a staggered parallel cycle in order to get two sequels out while the PlayStation was in its prime. They flirted with this concept before, during the early development of Final Fantasy IV, as well as during the development of Mystic Quest and FF5. But this was an undertaking of a much larger scope. This time, however, they had more of a strategy. They would take two completely opposite approaches in order to bring in new people into the fold and win back those that had left. Final Fantasy VIII would be a progressive, unmistakably modern game, and Final Fantasy IX would go back to its roots with a fancy story full of gooey nostalgia. Together, they'd broaden the fan base 
and strengthen the Final Fantasy name. For the more immediate project, the key staff left from the left game reunited to continue their work. Kasai was selected direct. Kasanuze Nijama once again penned the story, and Tetsuro Norma reprised his role as character designer. Despite this, they all agreed a, agreed a change was needed. During the development of FF7, there was a lot of concern that the CGI cutscenes wouldn't mesh well with the in-game graphics. So the team decided they should keep all the characters in realistic proportions this time, both on the field and in cinema. No more felt this style suited him more anyway, and it certainly flattered the CGI, which was growing eerily realistic as Square got more comfortable with the third dimension. They moved the world to a modern urban setting with a European feel, far from the classic swords and sorcery of old, and even the steampunk locales of the past two games. Its main characters were members of an academy, trained as merc- training as mercenaries, which lent a school days feel to the story. As much of a departure as the look and feel was, the rebuilt gameplay was even more dramatic. The team decided to do away with, level, with traditional leveling, which had become a bit trite. While characters could still advance, there was no curb to their progress, and the boost gains from lim- leveling were minimal. Instead, Final Fantasy VIII introduced its junction system, allowing summons to join with stats through various powers and advance those particular, particular abilities. This was the much more involved system, vaguely reminiscent of Final Fantasy II, without the same reliance on random factors that made the system so frustrating. For the first time, the series also limited magic points in draw, favor of the draw system, it gave players a finite number of uses for spells rather than a common pool. As alien as the game was to series fans, it raised the bar in production values and helped to establish Square's new Hawaiian animation studio as the best CG house in the game industry. While the unique gameplay has earned the game a bit of a backlash, there seemed scores of nine or more in nearly every major publication at the time of its release. It couldn't match the success of Final Fantasy VII, but with more than 8 million copies sold, it was nothing to sneeze at. Square's new, Square knew they would be setting themselves up for an undercurrent of dissent from the loyal fans that had been with them since the 8-bit days. Even Sakaguchi was beginning to miss the series he created more than a decade earlier. Of course, Square had, to work, had both the desert, disease and the cure. Long before FF8 was out, they were working on a nostalgic throwback to old times. They had their reservations. For much of Final Fantasy IX's development, they weren't sure if they wanted to be a numbered sequel or a spin-off for fear of confusing or alienating newer fans, but as soon as it became apparent they had something but it soon became apparent they had something worthy. In blending the new school production values, graphics, and presentation with the old-fashioned setting and gameplay, they had successfully brought together the best of both worlds. While the last two games were increasingly more realistic, Square decided to bring back the distorted, cartoonish versions of Amano's designs. Moogles, Chocobos, and even some of the more iconic classes like the Black Mage returned. 
as did plots centered on a powerful crystal. Even, even Uematsu's score worked old themes into new compositions, while the various environments were littered, worse, were littered with subtle wings to the past games. Square might have betrayed a few fans when they left Nintendo behind, but Final Fantasy IX was their letter of apology. Upon its release, Final Fantasy IX was met with, the, with nearly universal acclaim. Sakaguchi himself declared it his favorite game in the series so far, and the realization of the original vision he had so long ago. Despite a few complaints that old-fashioned, because sometimes border on cliché, it was the best-reviewed game in the series, at least in the West. Despite this, and all, it, it only managed to sell 5 million copies, a fact that it could partly be attributed to the declining 32-bit generation and the release of Dragon Quest VII in Japan a few months earlier. The next generation of consoles was drawing ever larger on the horizon, and Square was already hard at work on their next revolution. Alright guys, I think we're going to end that right there as we got through the first nine games in the Final Fantasy series. I hope you like that. Kind of just a look back. Not too detailed, but kind of giving a good story. Um, we'll look at maybe doing the rest of the story <laughs> at some point in time in the future. Um, again, this is a article by IGN.com, and the writer was Mark Nix. And I do apologize. There, there was a couple um, little errors in there to and fro, and I, I stumbled on those. And of course, my my Japanese names are just are horrible. You would you would think somebody who has been playing these games as long as I have would be better with Japanese names. I'm just I'm terrible at it, and I apologize. I hope you guys have enjoyed this, though. This has been Sunday Special Episode 2. We're looking back at the early history of Final Fantasy 1 through 9. So, hope you enjoyed it. 